It is great to be back with you after this last two and a half year field term and um, from Papua New Guinea. Thank you for your prayers and your giving and your support of us. It is biblical that the missionaries that you send out report back to you on the work that God has accomplished. As you saw in the video, we serve a people group where the people are subsistence farmers and live in woven bamboo walls, walled houses. It really does take a support team to serve. So thank you, thank you, each of you. Now, some of you who are newer members might have noticed me limping. Over the years, I've enjoyed coming up with explanations for why I limp. And so my latest explanation is that the Kamano Coffee language group where we serve, they have a story that most of the people in all of those 283 villages believe to be true. And that is that the very few white people that they see in their country are actually their dead relatives that they buried and somehow some, they're raised from the dead through some kind of magical process and then they're washed and then that washing causes them to become white and then, and then that's how the white skins came to be or the white people came to be. So one of our latest jokes that our translation team uh, talks about and jokes about is the reason why I limp and the reason why my right hand does not work well is that when my body was magically washed and I was raised from the dead, perhaps they didn't do me right. And maybe, maybe, and I'm, I'm joking with them and saying, maybe they can rewash me. <laughs> Actually, my limp is caused by cerebral palsy. Don't worry, you can't catch it. Okay, it's a form of brain damage due to the lack of oxygen at my birth. And God has greatly used this handicap, this weakness to shape and mold my life. For example, it has caused me to be much more tenacious and creative in solving problems. This handicap does not look pretty, but as I've gotten older, I now see all of the things that God has accomplished because because he has built extra adversity into my life. This cerebral palsy has also taught me that God loves to confound human wisdom by using the lowly and the feeble, including the kittens up there. Later in this sermon, I'm going to actually share why we need weak people around us to have true joy. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, it has been an amazing time this last couple of years. And as we look at this Bible text and learn from this, we ask that you would leave each and every one of us changed to understand what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Kamano Coffee team is translating the Old Testament. The Kamano Coffee people are an Old Testament culture. And the older I get, the more I think we Americans can learn so much from these stories. This morning, I want to share some things that I learned from this scripture passage that have really impacted my life and changed the way I think about God. And, um, and it also led to our team actually doing that movie drama sorcery that's an hour-long movie. Our translation team, by the way, has found that translating movies is a great way to minister in their own language, including the Jesus video, the Acts video, the Genesis video, the Hope video. Um, the community and our team are more passionate about their Bible because of the they see the changes of even criminals accepting Christ because of the, their work. 
In November 2016, five of us were sitting at the translation table. We had just finished editing the final sentence of this HIV AIDS movie that had, a, had the gospel message in it. When um, one of the Papua New Guineans said, man, now we need to find a video on sorcery and the damage that it does to us and our, our people. I heard that comment and I thought to myself, whoa, God, whoa, he speaks the truth. That is a felt need. That he's speaking a felt need. So the first tool, and we've left it blank on your notes, the first tool to go with God that I want to highlight is to be listening to your community, the community around Edgewood, the community in your neighborhood, and check out those felt needs that people are expressing. Can you do something with that felt need? Not all of them can we do something, but sometimes we can. But I was thinking, boy, God, I really don't want to be involved in that one. Meeting that felt need, I don't want to be there. As I was looking around the table, my brain started spinning off. You know how you can, you can think 15 times faster than somebody can talk. Um, and I was sitting there going, no, God, I don't want to be part of this solution. That's a need, yes. And then as I was complaining to God, God reminded me of this Bible text that we'd been translating about Jonathan and the Philistines. So let's look at that story. 1 Samuel 13, 5, it says, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. That's 1 Samuel 13, 5, by the way, if you're looking in your Bibles. 30,000 chariots. Keep that number in your mind. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns, which as actually a cistern is where you keep water there. You collect water. God had pro- prohibited, if you know your Bible, the Old Testament well, you'll notice that God had prohibited the Israelites from collecting many chariots, and so they would have to depend on God. God specifically told them, I do not want you doing this, And the reason was so they would depend on him, okay? And here they were up against this impossible odds of 30,000 chariots and an untold number of, of soldiers. This is a bit like today with issues where Satan wants to make you and I afraid of his power. But when we went into that movie making of that hour movie, I did not fear Satan. I feared not listening to my king and behaving like a Jonah. The truth is that we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear but our own disobedience. That is what we need to fear, is our own disobedience. Now, 1 Samuel 13, 19, let's go on to these verses. 1 Samuel 13, 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. 
But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So they were the only guys with swords and spears. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. Now on the slide here are examples of Maddox's. Okay, guys, laugh. Come on. You, well, wake up here, guys. I had to read that so you would all see that Joyce and I are named in the Bible. Now, when you look closely, good for you for laughing, <laughs> the Israelites did not have the tools to fight. In previous generations, they had the technology to build the wilderness tabernacle, including smelting gold, silver, and bronze. That first generation of Israelites who left Egypt probably had the ability to work iron. If you remember, given the fact that the Egyptian taskmasters had lots of chariots and the Egyptians made lots of money exporting horses and chariots. And the Israelites probably made many of those. So the Egyptian, their, their taskmasters had even exported a bunch of those chariots into the Red Sea during the Exodus. Somebody's listening. I, I heard some giggles there. Today, if you look online, you can even see some very strange-shaped-looking coral formations that are shaped in the shape of a wheel that has been overturned, like a chariot wheel that's been overturned. But the question we need to be looking at in this text is, how did the Israelites lose the ability to work with iron? I think lack of passing on the knowledge to the next generation. It sure looks like that first group of Israelites who left Egypt were skilled craftsmen who failed to pass along to the younger generation what they had learned. The skill died from lack of use. There is good evidence that King David, before he became king, when he and his band were living among the Philistines for protection from Saul, for a year and four months, and you can look that up at your leisure in 1 Samuel 27, that they watched and relearned, David and his men watched and relearned as they were living among the Philistines, think, stole the trade secrets, how to work with iron. My grandparents' generation kept the world free from, through a world war. So they kept the world free through a world war. My dad is 85, and his generation put a man on the moon using slide rules. My generation can't even figure out how to use a slide rule, nor have we been able to put a man back on the moon. Folks, I wince, and I get a little frustrated when I read articles written by 30-year-olds who claim that they are the smartest American generation ever. Guys, stay humble. Stay learners. Learn from the previous generations so we don't have to repeat their mistakes. For myself, I keep asking as a missionary and reading to find out what do I need to relearn that the previous missionaries did well. In Papua New Guinea, I've found that people want you to mark your vehicle so they know who is driving past them. Driving a car with tinted glass in Papua New Guinea is actually considered rude. I remember the time during the movie filming during the elections when we drove into a small town straight into a stone-throwing election riot. A relative of one of my team members heard the loud Kamano hymns that we play from our truck go past, looked and saw the back wheel cover pass, realized 
that we were driving into a stone-throwing election riot. So when she heard us quickly spin the truck back around, and boy, was I moving fast when we were spinning, we, as we realized we were driving into that election riot, um, she, when she heard the truck spin around and the music come back around the corner towards her, because she knew who we were, she came out on the road and waved at us into her yard and, and into the shelter of her house where for the next 45 minutes we sat in the truck with stones continuing to pelt the metal roofs on the house around us in that small town and the hedge in front of the truck and the houses on both sides of us were getting hit on the sides. Fortunately, the truck didn't. So the question for me is, what other tools do I need to learn or relearn to serve well? These Israelites could have used those tool-sharpening opportunities to talk to the Philistines about God and to share with them the, their God. For us, one possibility might be that we might need to relearn how to do small talk with our Christian neighbors around us that can lead to the sharing of the gospel. Another question I have is, are we passing along to our children the importance of tithing as a Christian discipline that has blessed you and me? And do your children know about tithing and the amazing thing it can do in their lives if they're tithing? Now, in chapter 14, as you read chapter 14 with me, look at Saul and Jonathan and the difference in their locations and the difference in their attitude in battle. Because where you are can create an attitude and a difference in how you react. I've asked myself, am I a Jonathan or a Saul in my own behaviors? A decade ago, I learned about the difference between planners and searchers and the impact that, that the difference in that, that technique had on missions. As God was convicting me that God might be leading our team to make a movie I realized that Jonathan was behaving like a searcher because we were translating this passage and that his father was acting like a planner. Now, so, so what is that? What that is is planners who fail and searchers who find help in solutions. Planners hold meetings. A meeting is considered work because something was being organized. Even if there was no applicable product. Searchers know that the best new ideas and plans are nearly always discovered while doing other work already. Faithfulness new organizational partnerships are discovered not in the planning, but while action is happening. Planners who plan who to train, so who are we going to train on this one? Then they make plans to try to ensure that those people trained will actually get the work done. And this is especially true in missions. Searchers know that no one else will get the work done. Searchers do training on a just-in-time or as an ad-needed basis. Searchers believe training is for people already actively doing the work. Now, in 1 Samuel 14, 1, it says, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young man who carried his armor, Come! Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now remember, 30,000 chariots alone, 600 men. 
Remember, the rest were hiding in caves. The ESV has a footnote that it could have been a cave or a tree. The Hebrew word for pomegranate is Ramon. And, and caves and locations around Israel are often named Ramon or pomegranate. And there was a cave nearby named um, Ramon. The key point, though, the Hebrew is very clearly making is that Saul was sitting in the shade. If it were a tree, here's an example of pomegranate trees. In verse 3, it says, including Ahijah, the son of Atub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes which, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines, to the garrison, where there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozaz, which actually means slippery in the Hebrew, which is really fun, by the way, to look up those, those things because the Hebrews often named names with a meaning. The name of the other was Sena, our pointed rock. The one crag, crag rose to the north in front of Michmash, the other the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Notice Jonathan's expectation that God was going to work, not a presumption, but an expectation. Could a tool that God wants you and I to add to our lives be to not demand of God or presume of God, but to live in expectation? That God desires to show his glory. Caleb, by the way, told Joshua when he was given his heel inheritance in Joshua 14, 12, he said those very same words. It may be the Lord will be with me. Verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, ha, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of garrisons hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, we'll tell you something. Or we'll tell you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. I mean, don't, don't you get this? This is just so cool because I mean, he's like in the middle of tens of thousands of people out there by himself. I mean, this is, this is like, I mean, get this. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and, and his armor bearer after him. Notice, by the way, the dirty, sweaty work going on here. Yes, God was with them, but they still had body odor. You will stink when you serve the Lord. Oh, forgive me. Some of you are ladies. You will glow when you serve the Lord. 
And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed some after him. And, after, and, that, first, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furlough's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was disappearing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, notice the planner here, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went to the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, uh, his, his fellow and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines, because see, they didn't even had Hebrews who had joined the Philistines to go against the Israelites. Before that time, and who had gone up with them into camp, with the Philistines into camp, even they turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Notice that God got the credit for saving Israel and starting with just 600 men against an enemy of just 30,000 chariots and, and a multitude, tens of thousands of Philistines. Even with the Israelites that came out of the caves to help, it still took a miracle. It still took a miracle to make this happen. God still wants to work that day today with you and I. He wants to do that today with you and me to deliver like he did that day. When we translated this, this Bible passage, one of the things I mentioned to my team, because we get to do Bible studies where we're translating, which is you know the most fun thing. If you want to come, come do that, that'd be great. We'd love to have you join us because there's lots of languages that need people to do this. But I said to my team members, notice that Jonathan had no miraculous sign telling him to get started. He knew he was a soldier. He knew his job was to engage the enemy, not to sit under a pomegranate tree in a, in a, a pomegranate tree or in a cave named after the pomegranate and be comfortable. He knew he had to leave his comfort zone and cross over and crossing over meant being uncomfortable and enduring danger. He did not tell his father, Saul, because his dad would have told him, son, you get right back here right now. Sorry, I can't do that with a proper Hebrew accent. Think about it. Jonathan left his comfort to go into the unknown with a, come, it may be the Lord will work for us 
For the Lord is not restrained, save by many or by few. David left his comfort. Both David and Jonathan did things that no one else were willing to do. They had to cross over to people who were not like them. Okay? Then do what God wanted done. Crossing over is different than hiding or remaining comfortable like Saul did as he sat in camp. If you think about it, very few of the prophets lived in comfort. Jesus left heaven. Paul left family and friends. The thing is that each of these people are examples of people involved in real ministry. Reaching across to people who are often not at all like themselves. Saul sat in camp. This is a key tool or takeaway here. Because it's, it's human nature to want to be around people like ourselves. And not to want to be around people who are different from us. Why is that? Because people different than, than you are, people who make you well, they, they make you and, and me uncomfortable. The problem is, is the normal human reaction is to surround ourselves with people who are like ourselves to do jobs that are comfortable. But here is the catch. Everything in our culture is advising us to be comfortable. Except, of course, when you're exercising. Then our culture says, you know, no pain, no gain. Okay. But otherwise, we're supposed to be comfortable. Otherwise, there's some kind of problem going on if you're not comfortable. The problem is the ministry that God wants is nearly always to those unlike ourselves who make us uncomfortable. So the last 10 years of my life, I've been thinking, could a tactic of Satan be to make you and I unable to live without our need for comfort? Because we're raised with this need for comfort. It's actually a need in America. It's not a want. My mind was still meditating on the idea of doing a movie on sorcery and still complaining to God. And I want to read a passage from Adoniram Judson. I love to read about the previous missionaries and how they, they served and how they worked. Adam Niram Judson was the very first American foreign missionary and probably the smartest missionary that we have ever sent out. He served in Burma from 1813 to 1850. And he's writing a letter here, and he's writing a very long letter. We're only going to read his sixth point. He says, sixthly, beware of the greater reaction which will take place after you've acquired the language and become fatigued and worn out with, the preaching, with preaching the gospel to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Some mothers here can probably apply this text to working with your children. You will sometimes long for a quiet retreat where you can find respite from the tug and the toiling at native work, the incessant intolerable friction of the missionary grindstone. And Satan will sympathize with you in this matter. And he will present some chapel of ease in which to officiate in your native tongue, some government situation, some professorship or some editorship, some literary or scientific pursuit, some supernumerary translation, or at least some system of schools, anything in a word that will help you, help you without much surrender of character. Notice that word. 
surrender of character. To slip out of real missionary work, such a temptation will form the crisis of your disease. If your spiritual constitution can sustain it, you will recover. If not, you will die. Now that is from a letter to new missionaries going. But we can equally take that and, and apply that to our Christian lives. We want naturally as human beings to not surrender our character. And um, we want to take the easy way out. Now, a modern-day call from a guy named Gabe Lyons in his book, The Next Christian, Seven Ways You Can Live the Gospel and Restore the World, he states a similar thing. So this is, I mean, within the last 10 years. He says, there's a popular idea that Christians should pursue safety and comfort. He says it should be courage over comfort. We must call people to true discipleship that rejects the assumptions that Christians have a right to be comfortable and safe. Woo, man. Better get out of here. They're going to start throwing rocks. Risk and sacrifice are at the heart of Jesus' call to discipleship. Whoever wants to be my discipleship must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I don't even want to do this, by the way. This applies equally, by the way, to praying and sending, to giving and to going. And I just want to mention, as an example of denying yourself, I want to say thank you to the Van Lu family. They have hosted many of your missionaries in their apartment. And um, one of the surrender of character things is Chris every Monday morning comes and picks up our garbage. Okay. So, um, you know, those are the kind of things that they do to surrender character, to bless those who are going around the world. We have already seen that Jonathan was a seeker and Saul was a planner. There's another thing I want to highlight for you here that separates both men. And this is something you can kind of meditate on this week as well. And it's called the predator or the protector. To have joy in a group, like in a school or a church or a family, or it used to be our neighborhoods had this, um, but we really, our neighborhoods aren't as close as they used to be. Both the weak and the strong need to be present. Take, for example, a family with a newborn. The strong have great joy in encouraging and protecting that newborn baby. The same is true in other groups. If the strong protect the weak, there can be joy in that group. But if the predators prey on and shame or ostracize the weaker members, joy is replaced by depression and anger. So looking at Jonathan's life as an overall view of his life and what he did there in protecting in this, in this battle, he protected David, who was in a weaker position with Saul. But Saul prayed, was a predator on David and tried to isolate and remove David. Saul's behavior caused a very low joy environment. Later in this story, Jonathan stops to enjoy a momentary rest by eating some honey. We're not going to read those verses. But Saul had already pronounced a curse on anyone who was in need and weak um, by not allowing them to eat anything before the end of the battle. So the question I've been asking myself is, do I create safe spaces for the people around me, especially the weak people around me, 
That is hard because we naturally want to be around the strong. But God has created us so that caring for the weak is a source and a cause of joy in our lives. God loves it when we have multiple generations, grandchildren, children, and and grandparents together working to protect the weak. That little point alone is worth taking away as a new tool as you serve the king. And to ask yourselves, in what areas of my life, maybe I need to change from being a predator to being a protector. Am I protecting those around me, my wife, my children, the people at work? Am I being a protector in my church? Those kind of things. To bless the weak and to serve them and to help them That is where God causes joy to start. That's another reason, by the way, for Edgewood to continue to be a multi-generational church. You got to be multi-generational to have true joy among you, to have the weak at both ends of the spectrum, the very young and the very old, and... um, and to bless. So keep going. Good job, Edgewood. Keep going, being that multi-generational church. By the way, has anybody noticed the latest research um, on stress? This is another one. The latest research um, is that what you and I believe about stress is critical. If you think that stress is bad and is going to damage your body when you view stress, Um, that's different. But when you view stress as healthy, you create courage. Like Jonathan, he created courage in his own life because he saw that it was a healthy thing to go and do. Even non-Christian scientists are now saying that chasing meaning is better for your health than trying to avoid discomfort. Even the non-Christians are saying it. The Bible's already said it. So go after what creates meaning in your life and trust yourself to handle the stress. They say caring creates resiliency. And only, this is from a non-Christian, only in a state of discomfort can you grow. Whoa, God already said that. They stole it and they didn't even get credit from who they stole it from. When we decide to make this sorcery movie, when we, our team, decided to make the sorcery movie, we did it to save lives and communities. The team and I shed more tears and prayed more passionately about making that movie and going after it and doing it than any other project that we have been involved in. In 2014 at Christmas camp, we dedicated the New Testament. I mentioned we would work on the dictionary next in front of a group of people, about 2,000 people. One of the lead pastors said in front of 2,000 people, no, we want you to work on the Old Testament. Actually, he said that in another language, but that way you can hear me. Um, he committed, so, so our team was like, oh, baby, this, this is coming from a leader. And he's already said it in front of 2,000 people. So we committed to that impossible task of doing an entire Bible. So here I am wanting to finish the Old Testament. I'm being a good American. I'm thinking, Lord, 
We can't take months off to film a movie. We have 14,000 verses in the Old Testament to go yet. Lord, this sorcery movie is a good thing, but if we do this project, we will never finish the Old Testament. Lord, you know all the steps it's going to do to take to make a sorcery movie. Lord, let someone else, Lord, you know I'm getting older and overnighting in villages in a sleeping bag is really hard. Lord, I have cerebral palsy. Good excuse. If it fails, we're going to look like fools. Then I'm hearing in my mind, yes, Rich, those are nice American comfort excuses. Rich, you're right. This is too big for the tiny translation team I have given you to work with. But isn't that the point? I'm your king. I've got this. You just be obedient. Don't delay, Rich. People are dying every day from these false accusations. Then the thought crossed my mind. Someone's got to try this. Perhaps, perhaps God will be with us in this. And besides, look, if God doesn't want it, want it done, he won't give the money. You know, so, so that's a good out. Making, making movies is expensive. So that was my fleece right there. So looking around the table, I said, I think God wants us to try to make a movie about the destruction the sorcery does and on God's protection from Christians. You should have seen the team almost come out of their chairs. They were like, yes, we've got to do this. And they started talking about stories that they could add and all this other stuff. We decided that Kosek would write the first draft of the movie about a true story where his father-in-law was killed. I said to the team, if God gives us the money, and the story, we will, we will go after this. I had forgotten that that year, Wycliffe had changed its budget rules. They required that the tithe offerings that you, our church, and families give to us be budgeted to the very penny with everything that we were going to do on what we would be allowed to do for the next 12 months. Our new budget had been in place one month when our team had made that idea to do the sorcery movie, had that idea to do the sorcery movie, I wrote to the Wycliffe Project budget office telling them we just had a great idea to do a sorcerer movie. I got an email back um, with the time zone difference and everything, and I was told, sorry, you can't use any money from your budget for the next 12 months. And we were not allowed to mention it to our churches as a need because we had not written the sorcery budget um, movie into our budget. So we had not presented that idea to them, and so we couldn't go for it with any of the money that came in from Wycliffe. We could, however, wait a year and put it in the next budget. The new Wycliffe USA funding rules caused that no. I walked away from that email where I was told we had to wait in a whole year, actually more than that, for the new budget to start shaking my head. I was like, okay, God, if people are going to make rules like this and you want this done this year, you got to do this. Lord, people are dying every day from false accusations, and the problem is going to consume this country of Papua New Guinea. Within four months of getting that email, and by the way, I went to my supervisor there in Papua New Guinea, and he said, it's a great idea, Rich. You got to see if you can do this. And I mentioned the issue with the project budget, and he said, well, we'll see where God takes this one. Um, and so we prayed. Within four months, so I got permission. Um, we just didn't have any money to do it, and I couldn't tell you guys what we were up to either. Within four months of getting the email, God had provided nearly $9,000 of the $11,500 estimated filming budget. 
it only costs 2,500. Tina, actually, probably about $450 to burn down a village house in Papua New Guinea. So you can do it quite a bit cheaper. Um, Joyce and I paid for the script writing from our own tithe. And, and, and by the way, 78% of that money came from Papua New Guinea Christians. It came from Papua New Guinea Christians. They were so excited somebody was going to go after this because it was killing their family members. And innocent people were being falsely blamed and then killed, murdered. And so they tithed like crazy. We and other missionaries gave the last 22% of that needed budget. During those days, God laid on my heart that the budget needed to include a two-camera shoot. I'd get up every morning, I have a new idea of popping into my brain. And man, Rich, you gotta go get two cameras, you know, or I'd be walking along and this idea would pop into my head, wait a minute, you gotta do this. Two camera shooting every scene and your team needs help. And by the way, Rich, the two best guys to help are two missionary children, guys that you taught in your class in Ukarumpa. You watched them graduate from, uni from university with film degrees. Ask these two guys first. I obeyed and noticed on Facebook that one was married and expecting a baby in the very same month we wanted to start filming. The other was nearly perfectly timed to come, having finished months of working at a film school in Africa. In Nathan, God gave us the technical expert I could trust. One of our very own missionary children who grew up in Papua New Guinea, um, who walked barefooted during most of the filming. This movie is now in three languages, guys. It is amazing how God puts these tiny teams together and then he gives you really, really talented people to come alongside and he just empowers. It's awesome. I mean, we, we were, we were, you know, movies, they're million, million, you know, $25 million to make a movie or whatever, some hundred thousand. We did this on $11,500. But you say, why a drama? Why not a documentary? In India, they have found that if you want to change a cultural behavior, documentaries don't work. Radio or TV dramas do work. Notably, our team chose to do a drama about a true story. Now, Gabe Lyons gave a modern-day list to help us think about engaging our culture. Here are more tools for you, and you might want to write some of these down. You may not. Some of these you may want to write down, others you may not, um, to think about. Provoked, not offended. To, provoke, to be provoked really means to take action, not to sit back, to do something. Creators, not critics. In, in creating this movie, we had hoped to help lead the culture in a better direction by being cultural restorers, and God has clearly done that. Seven different village fights have now stopped. They've, they've actually said that movie stopped that fight in that village. We've got many, many people are still alive because of it. Uh, three weeks ago, we had a group of people who accepted Christ after watching the movie. Um, and so the pastors, we've given them a tool to help them. We've created that tool. And God is amazingly taking it and using it to change a culture. Called, not employed. I need to remind myself that I serve a king and that Jesus and Paul did not observe a 40-hour work week. 
really only the last three generations have had the luxury of working a 40-hour work week in our culture. Before that, there was no 40-hour work week. It's a new thing, guys. You don't have to do a 40-hour work week. Grounded, not distracted. In community, not alone. God wants us working with teams. He wants us working with people. He knows, he wants to work with our weakness. Civil, not divisive. Countercultural, not relevant. Now, Lyons mentions that trying to be relevant makes us cultural followers, not cultural leaders. So just be different. You know, for me, I've got cerebral palsy. It's pretty easy. I, I, I can never really look hipster or cool or whatever. Um, um, and so I just be me, you know, and love the Lord and love people. That's what it's about. And quit trying to be cool. Being cool just gives you anxiety, gives you trouble and that kind of stuff. So just be yourself, you know, just love people. That's, that's what God created you to do anyway. So, so be countercultural, not relevant. So three more applications for you here to help our lives. Number one, what we often forget is that we have had the good news, the Bible in English for 600 years. And that our ancestors struggled with all sorts of beliefs mostly because it took time for God's word to sink in and change individuals and then society. It changes the individuals and then society. And remember, go after one at a time, one at a time, one person at a time in your life. God may have given you a grandchild or somebody like that, and he wants you to minister to that child. One at a time, guys. But are we in in America in a post-biblically literate culture? Do we need to be challenging the people around us to read or download and listen to the best-selling book of all time? What is that book? The Bible. Yep. And it did amazing things for our culture and needs to do them again because we've lost it. And people need to be challenged by this book, the Bible. As a matter of fact, one of the ladies who's a fellow missionary in Papua New Guinea, she's an African-American. She was a doctor, a medical doctor here in America. She decided that she had, you know, one of her educational things that she hadn't done was she hadn't read the Bible. So she popped in the Bible um, in her car as she was going back and forth to work as a medical doctor. She accepted Christ in Leviticus. Okay, I, I, I mean, think about it. And you can be challenging your non-Christian friends to download it and listen to it on those long drives that they're sitting in traffic. Because, boy, do you guys have traffic? Man, Whew. Um, and, and you get to sit in a lot of it. You could be listening to the Bible. They could be listening to the Bible. It's a great educational thing that can really, really help them understand some foundations of America and and and, and um, really round out their education if they would do that. Number two, crossing over to unlike people. Are you being courageous with that? Are you ministering to people like yourself or people unlike yourself? Are you doing what, what you might have done in high school? That is for friends. Are you finding friends who are very like you and whom it is easy to create deep 
and lasting friendships and tight social bonds? Or are you purposely reaching out and spending time with people who are weak and unlike yourself? Number three, how are you doing taking on the jobs that nobody else wants? Jonathan did, David did, Jesus did, Adoniram Judson did. Is comfort a factor in your decision to serve? I've really had to battle that one in my own life. You know, I, I can't use comfort as a decision to serve. Are you taking on extra uncomfortable activities that will stretch you and grow you, like being a Sunday school teacher or an Awana leader or doing something else in this body of believers? And no, they didn't pay me to say that. But think about it. That's how we grow. That's, that's how we become more Christ-like. It's taking on those odd things, those, those, those things that take us out of our comfort zone and, and build our character. And so look around. And one of the really cool things that I have found in my own life is to take on the jobs that no one else wants to do. Give off jobs that other people want to do. And then I go on to the next thing that is, is the thing that nobody else wants to do. In my missionary career, it's been an amazing thing how God has used that. And that's why Tyndale is going after the Old Testaments and going after those revisions of those New Testaments because people still have to get those last 2,184 languages to get them the Bible in those languages. And they're going after it. And good for them. But somebody's got to go for the, the hard stuff, the other stuff, the unpopular stuff. Are you doing it in your life? Could you do it somewhere this week, maybe with a grandchild or somebody that you're working with? Or do that? Let's pray. Father, you are the host of the angel armies. You have called us to be your children. You have called us to live lives of courage and to serve those who are different from ourselves. Father, help each of us to be courageous and to grow our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.